I'm Laura. And I'm Georgiana. And this is Decanterbury Tales. Hello. Hello. How are you today? I'm good. Happy March. Happy March. It is almost the end of the month and it has been glorious. We've been busy this month. It's been a busy month. Uh, But first of all, hello. Welcome to Decanterbury Tales. I'm Georgiana. And I'm Laura, and this is a Boozy Book Club episode. So we had the pleasure of interviewing our March pick, Katie Hayes. She wrote The Cloisters. And uh, so that's going to kind of be the meat and potatoes of our episode. So excited about that. But obviously, first, we better. <laughs> Um, according to the notes, I go first this month. So, (laughs) and I traveled a lot. Last we spoke, I somehow managed to pull off only being physically in the office between February 22nd and March 22nd, nine days. Um, I'm finally back in the office and can't wait to leave again. Uh, just kidding. I love my job. I just, uh, really enjoyed how flexible the last month has been and just out of the office and spending time out in the world. It's been really nice. But um some non-alcoholic news real quick that I wanted to share cuz I saw it on LinkedIn through a mutual connection that worked on their marketing campaign. Corona is releasing a 0.5% ABV Corona beer that is apparently chicken nuggets SLM um, <laughs> that apparently is like tastes almost exactly the same as a regular fully leaded Corona, if you will. So this would be kind of less alcohol than a kombucha. So for those of you that are non-alcoholic or just want to break from booze from time to time, Corona has an option for you. I'm excited because there's nothing better on a really hot day than a Corona with a lime in it. But sometimes it's like so disgusting outside that you don't even want the alcohol. That like- <laughs> I don't want it. I don't want it. Don't give it to me. But so like that refreshing Corona moment without booze. booze. Yeah, I'm into it. I'm going to try it. Yeah, I'm definitely going to give it a shot this summer. It's supposed to be, there's a meme going around, at least in Mississippi, that uh, it says the South is going to get, is about to go back in the oven this summer. They put us in the chiller. They took us out. They marinated us with pollen and then they put us back in the fridge. <laughs> they're like it's, they're gonna put us in the oven that's funny it is like 30 degrees but two weeks ago it was 85 so we've we've been up and down too it was like 45 this morning or something like that maybe 50 I don't know but not as cold as that so apparently we're done I don't know I don't believe it but I don't we'll see it. Nope. So in the great big world of everything, I went to Los Angeles for three days for conference, then took the train, which in the South, we don't really take the train. Trains aren't really a thing. So I whimsically took the train with my husband from uh, LA down to Anaheim, and we went to Disneyland for the first time, which was really exciting. Y'all know how much I love Disney. So really excited to go to Disneyland and experience that for the first time. Um, I got to meet the Mandalorian, 
and the child like he carries around a satchel that actually has like a little robot baby yoda in it it's really cute uh that is currently i think they're now in orlando but they were at disneyland first so it was cool to see them and yeah my husband did this clutch move where he changed our departure airport from lax to the john wayne airport in santa rosa or santa clara i don't remember exactly but it ended up saving us like six hours of travel time so that was a it was a 1-800 american airlines phone call at like 6 p.m to swap our flight for the next day and it was so worth it that's priceless that time yeah like travel time is the worst uh i went to orange beach alabama which we do for spring break every year and every year it's cold uh it was very cold it was like 42 degrees most days I did a lot of yoga and I read three books the beach is pretty um kind of really it I saw some dolphins that was cool I saw them from a distance from the condo because I was not going down to the beach because it was too cold and what else that was it for travel lots of family time I am testing out have you heard about chat GPT no I have not so it's basically AI and you can ask it to write things for you. You can have a full-blown conversation, but you can also be like, write an article about, I asked it to write me an article about neutrals in fashion, like neutral tones. And so I'm doing a series of articles as like marketing research on LinkedIn using chat GPT as the starting point to build the structure and then going back in and completely rewriting it with like my own perspective and words, obviously, but just doing it as kind of an exercise on AI. So very, very interesting to have a robot formulate and it's supposed to be, it's a chat bot basically, but it's super, super, it feels like a person wrote it. It's very strange to me. And I bought an ice roller for my face and I love it. So if you don't have one, I highly recommend getting one. It is delightful. I will add to cart. I did not. <laughs> 10 out of 10. What a, what are what have, have you been? How's your March been? So I did not travel nearly as many places you did, but I did have a really cool vacation. Um, I went to Grand Cayman, Alex's company. Um has a meeting twice a year in an international location. And so I got to go to Grand Cayman for a week and it was just lovely. We did start out with a little bit of a faux pas. Um, Alex accidentally uh, booked the trip for me and his dad, not me and him, him and I. (laughs) Grammar is not working with me right now. Um, So I spent 24 hours in Grand Cayman by myself and love Alex. Wish he had been there. But um, honestly, 24 hours in Grand Cayman was lovely. I was Uh, like, that sounds, that could go for that right about now. That sounds delightful. Some of those good old fashioned alone time. I went to bed at 8.30. It wasn't even like crazy. I went and got a quinoa and kale salad with grilled shrimp and a pina colada. Ooh. And then I went to bed at 8.30. It was great. Um, 
the next day I got sunburned because, you know, it was the first time the body had seen the sun and it was like, help. And <laughs> it was like, help. <laughs> yep. And so I got the, the first base burn out of the way. Yeah. Just, just get it out of the way for the yep. year. So I will be, you know, brownish from here on out. And so while we were there, we did paddle boarding, jet skiing, ATVing. So we also got a massage, which was really nice. Was it on the beach or was it in the spa? No, it was in the spa. We learned that Alex hates massages. So really? Yeah. He, he didn't like the, the ambient lighting and <laughs> foreign people's hands on him and foreign. I mean, like not, he, he does not knows. know. Yeah. <laughs> And, um, so I will be getting massages on my own from now on. Okay. Well, okay. Um, but yeah, it was a lot of fun. I also did, I did do yoga on the beach. It was very jealous. It was more like restorative yoga, which was actually kind of nice because the balance on the sand was like, Ooh, goodness. Yeah. And, um, so a lot of just kind of stretching, which was really nice. And then I read two books while I was there, but one of them was really long. So. So it's practically three. Exactly. Laura and I were talking about this earlier. I, I read, I've read two books this month that were over 500 pages, pushing 600. And so I count that as like three books in my mind, because if they were, you know, your normal 350 that you had going, it would be three books. So that's what I tell myself make myself feel better I just refilled my teacup so I don't know if y'all just got some like tea pouring ASMR on the background there but we did not but it would have been very relaxing but then I also have to take my logic from that if I read a short book does that mean it counts as half a book no <laughs> it's a whole book <laughs> I mean it's hard no no <laughs> I know. And I broke my book buying ban. I've been on a book, a book buying ban since like the beginning of January. And I don't know what happened in the last, like right before we went to the beach, I just went buck wild and bought probably six books, seven books. I read several of them already. Uh, hold on one second. Chicken nugget is demanding to be released. How'd you go? Okay. They'll be back. Um, they always come crawling back. But no, I, I broke my book buying ban. I saw that you did as well. <laughs> oh, I did. Yeah, she didn't even post her book buying ban. Maybe she will. Yeah, I, I too said I was not going to buy books, but interesting things kept creeping in. And I was like, I need to own them. So I well, did. And then Sarah Penner had to go and release the most beautiful book that's hit bookshelves in a very in a while. long time. Yeah. And it is stunning. I don't know which version you got. I ordered the Barnes and Noble one online pickup in store. I ordered that one because it's an exclusive copy. Like, I guess there's something about the cover that's different. But that's that what I got. Freaking stunning. It's mm-hmm. stunning. So that's how I broke the book buying ban is I went into the Barnes and Noble app. I upgraded my membership, by the way. I was very proud of myself. I um, opened the app and then I was beset upon 
I don't even know that's the way to say it, with all of the books. And it was like, buy me, buy me. And I was like, okay. Yeah, I got hit with the buy one, get one 50% off table. Mm. Yep. I also was in that lane. Okay, got you, got you. I'm glad, I'm glad that we have succumbed to the yeah. exact same thing. And I walked into Barnes and Noble and there was a table of all of the books that are like in my Amazon cart because <laughs> that's how I store my books. Like it, it's just an easy way for me to streamline and see what I want to read. Mm-hmm. And so if I go to like a used book retailer, I see it, it's cheaper than it is on Amazon. I can totally buy it, you know, support local businesses, pick out ones at smaller bookstores, things like that. Um, so my whole Amazon cart happened to just be sitting on the opening table and the restraint I showed, I mean, I still walked out with five books, but that could have been way worse. It could have been 12. <laughs> it could have. I spent less than a hundred dollars on books. That's a safe, safe visit. That's to a safe trip. Table. That's a safe trip. Yeah. Could be, could be. Uh, yeah. Speaking of the books, what have you read? I have read a lot since last we spoke. So quick rundown. I read Love in the Time of Serial Killers by Alicia Thompson, Part of Your World by Abby Jimenez, The Bartender's Cure by Wesley Stratton, Counterfeit by Kristen Chen, and Hook, Line, and Sinker by Tessa Bailey. I am currently reading The London Seance Society by Sarah Penner. And I have several books sitting on my shelf, and I'm not sure which one I'm going to get next which one I'm going to read next, but my TBR went from being like, it's almost gone to like, oh, it's back to its full, (laughs) back to its full length. What about you? I counted my TBR. Oh no, how bad is it? Over 50. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Over 50. Over 50. Wait, I have a question. Yeah. So we have our TBR, right? And then I've also realized that book people are like dragons and we have collections. Correct. And I have lent a book from my collection to someone and it's the remark, it's remarkably bright creatures. Mine is on loan right now too. I do not know how long it, it is permitted to, for me to wait, to be like, hi, can I have it back? (laughs) I want it. I want it back. Okay, so I gave, I left Remarkably Bright Creatures on my boss's desk. I was out of town for a week, or she was out of town for a week. I was out of town for a week, and she brought it to me on Monday, so two weeks. And then someone saw it in my office and asked if they could read it, so I handed it right off. So I say two weeks. Okay, it has been like two months. No, no. And I'm concerned that I won't get it back. <laughs> and I don't want to buy it again. No. You, but you I want it back. Yeah. I want it in my collection. Yeah, no book etiquette. Totally get to, get, get to give it back. And I'm sorry to the people that I have your book. I'm really sorry. I kind of forgot and then you moved. <laughs> oh my but, gosh. But you kind of told me that it, I could keep it. So it's fine. But if you want it back, DM me. So uh, what have you been reading? I have been reading. Um, well, I am currently reading The Bartender's Cure at your uh, 
recommendation. I am also, so I don't have a listening this month because my listening is the other book that I'm reading. I am okay. listening to Crazy Rich Asians by Kevin Kwan. Is it and, good on audiobook? Um, yeah, it's fine. It's it's not the same as the movie. And so I think I would have, I'm kind of like waiting for it to be the same as the movie. And got it. I guess I'm just jaded because I loved the movie so much. And I always... I always think the book is better than the movie, but I think I'm so in love with the movie. The book is at a detriment and I hate saying that. That'd be a fun um, bonus episode. We should do that. We should do books versus the movie. That and would do be like fun. a book and movie marathon where we like read a book and then watch the movie and do comparisons and which one was better. New content, y'all. We'll work on it. Um. Just after, you know, I do the blog posts because we really need to add more to my plate. Um, yeah, that's a dig at me. Sorry. Uh, I read The Alchemist by Paulo Coelho. Coelho, excuse me. I even wrote down the pronunciation. I'm really proud of you. Read that in a day. Fabulous. Um, I read The Whalebone Theater by Joanna Quinn. I read The Things We Never Got Over by Lucy Shore. I read Other Birds by Sarah Addison Allen. And then Part of Your World by Abby Jimenez. So good. So good. So good. Um, I love you, but, 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 sorry. We really set it up. Yeah. So I've been reading a lot too. And I'm excited to really dive into The Bartender's Cure. That's kind of my it's plan. It's so freaking good. Huh. And so I guess I just finished my my reading and listening. So I'll just wrap it up and get my watching out of the way. Ted Lasso season three. Woohoo! I'm so glad it's back. So, so ready for tomorrow to get my next episode. I am still trying to finish The Man in the High Castle season four. Uh, and then we watched the mini documentary series on... MH370, the plane that disappeared. And that was real good. Real interesting. What do you have going? Well, I just remembered something that I was watching. So my little brain was like, let me type this before I forget. Uh, So I am watching the latest season of The Mandalorian on Disney+. Plus. I have one, I have the final episode of the first season of The Last of Us on HBO. We're probably going to watch that tonight. And then we watched the documentary series Gunther's Millions on Netflix. It's basically about like a dog that inherited like several million dollars and well, is like a billionaire in a trust. It's a German shepherd. It's really fucked up. Uh, And then listening to is uh, Wine and Crime. They just did an episode on stalkers, which is really interesting. And the Endel app, it's really just like ambient noise, but it's an app and it's really, really good. I really like it. Rihanna, and <laughs> I am listening to Atomic Habits, the audiobook on Audible. And that's what we got going on. I'm that was have- a longer, that was a longer chit chat banter than normal, but it was a fun one. It was. We, we've been doing a lot. Well, we've had a lot to talk about. You ready yeah. to talk about our wine pairing? Sure, I'm ready to talk about that wine pairing. So this is from A.A. Badenhorst family of wines. 
It is, the curator has a white and a red blend that comes out every year. So I am picking the red blend just because I think that it goes well with the cloisters. Like a white just doesn't, I just don't feel like it would work. I know that it talks about it being hot. So yes, go with the white if you really want to, but really like the cards and the museum and all of that like just it it spoke red wine to me the dark academia calls for red wine I'm with you on that thank you so and this I is Paul. Say, I must say the curator great pairing thank you so it is called the curator and I just felt that that was literally perfect and could not find a better option it is a South African Swartland region Rhone blend and it retails for about $11 a bottle some places have it on sale for even under $10 a bottle and it comes in at 13.5 percent ABV so I have stolen happy. yeah I've stolen my notes from various wine cellars across the globe so there was an Australian wine shop and a British wine shop uh, that had a series of notes on this wine, and I stole them both. And I will share those when I look up the stuff later. So we'll share that on the blog and give credit where credit is due, obviously. So South African winemaker Addy Badenhorst, Badenhorst is famous for his unique ability to craft terrific wines that sell from humble to truly luxurious price points. The curator wines are on the bargain end of that spectrum and were created because Addy was heartbroken to see so many of his Swartland neighbors selling terrific grapes to big companies to be used as box wine. The curator red is a blend of 84% Syrah, Sinsalt, and Verde, Ruh. all picked ripe, fermented in tank, and blended masterfully. It certainly smells and feels more robust than 13.5% alcohol, delivering intense dark fruit with berries and plums, accents of cured tobacco and damp earth. Finishes remarkably long for a wine at this price point with fruit, earth, and tobacco flavors lingering nicely. Great cookout, roasted red meat, but supple and rich enough to sip solo too. And I have more. So from Venus, it scored Vin or Venus. Yeah, it's Venus. Um, V-I-N-O-U-S. It scored 92 points out of 100. The 2019 curator is matured in used barrels, has a lovely bouquet of mulberry, red plum, rubios, Rubus, I can't ever say that word, and light fennel aromas. The harmonious expressive palette is medium bodied with a dab of pepper on the entry, good weight, and slightly tertiary red fruit toward the finish. This is a fine red blend with good persistence and plenty of personality. The Family Wines Curator Red Blend simply jumps from the glass, displaying exotic red and black fruits with a mouth-filling texture. Known for having impeccable taste and style, Addie Badenhorst has assembled this wonderful blend from a library of wine parcels at his disposal. Distinct, complex, and very easy drinking, sophisticated yet unpretentious, much like Mr. Badenhorst himself. Enjoy this wine. I like, these are all such specific food pairings. Enjoy this wine with a mushroom and lentil moussaka. 
it is once again from South Africa. It is the coastal region of South Africa in the Swartland region. It is a red, like we said, and it is a screw cap top. So you can Woo-hoo! give that one a nice little crack. And the style is sophisticated yet unpretentious. And they suggest that you drink it with anything barbecued. From his dry farmed vines in the Swartland area of South Africa, close to the town of Malmesbury, Addie Badenhorst has created this unique blend. Each component adds its own unique character to the wine. As the winemaker suggests, the curator is made for great drinkability, of course, which means the flavors are prominent and the texture silky and sumptuous, which makes me kind of feel like the cloisters too. Like everything's kind of like silky and like a little sexy, but a little dirty. Like, I don't know the whole, I just feel like it just goes so well. Drink with attractive friends or cellar until you have attractive or interesting friends. That is a literal quote from the winemaker. Drink with attractive friends or cellar it until you have attractive or interesting friends. Wow. Love. And we have not covered a South African wine yet. So I have a couple of notes from, hold please, totalwine.com about South African wine. So these are quick little quips that's like question and answer. So Q&A, here we go. So the little intro here is South Africa hits its stride. The wines of South Africa are some of the most exciting yet underappreciated in the world. Vineyards in South Africa are located in a variety of climates and in regions that have such diverse types of land that the best South African wine can compete with the greatest on earth. South African wine is becoming an increasingly important part of the culinary culture, with consumers buying more and more domestically and producers exporting an increasing volume to countries around the world. When wine lovers think of Chenin Blanc, South Africa is likely one of the first places that comes to mind, and with good reason. It's delicious! (laughs) South African Chardonnay has also taken on an ever larger role in recent years, and the Reds are often showstoppers. So what is South African wine? The answer is very simple. South African wine is any wine that's produced inside the borders of the country and from grapes that have been grown there. It's near impossible to discuss the nation's wine production in broad stylistic terms because there's such a beautiful mosaic of them. Your best bet is to explore the category yourself. And what's great is you don't have to spend a fortune to do so. I did a little bit of digging and that's quite true. There are some very expensive, like $350 bottles of wine from South Africa, but the bulk of South African wines that you're going to find are under that $20 mark. So you can really taste the rainbow. You can taste this little mosaic of South African wines and not break the bank. And from all of the reviews, they're all performing really, really well. So this is kind of a secret little cool wino tip is, you know, dig into that South African wine. So where does this wine come from? Most well-known wine regions in South Africa are found in and around Western Cape. This is the area within a few hours of Cape Town. Because of the presence of mountains, as well as diverse influences from both the Atlantic and Indian Oceans, the wine regions of this part of South Africa are tremendously varied. Stellenbosch is the most famous, I'm really proud of myself. And the Chenin Blanc there is among the best in the world. I am skipping that word. Uh, 
<laughs> there are there's another winery that's making a name for itself with varieties like Cabernet Sauvignon, Cabernet Franc, and Merlot, as well as Shiraz. Newer regions like Swartland, which is where ours reigns from, are having huge success with grapes like Shiraz and Grenache, in addition to Pinot Noir. And Parle is increasingly respected for its Voigner. Thank you very much. Is South Africa considered New World wine? Since it's not located in Europe, which is traditionally where Old World wine is produced, it's often considered to be New World. However, wine has been produced in South Africa for centuries since the mid-1600s. In that regard, it could be considered Old World. From a stylistic standpoint, some producers work in the New World mode, focusing on fruit and the use of more new oak barrels, but some vineyards are more Old World in philosophy, glace, play, bleh, play, bleh, play, play, placing a greater importance on the land and the non-fruit characteristics of their wines. And that, my friend, is South African wine and our wine pairing, the Curator Red Blend. Well, thank you for that. I am kind of excited. Um, compared to our last uh, month's wine, the Sancerre, you know, being more expensive for a better bottle um, to really kind of get the flavor and that you want with this, it's kind of the opposite is that you can get a bunch within a reasonable price range to try it, to test it, see what you like, see what you don't like. And so I guess I like that it's more accessible in that way Yeah, um, that you could buy the bottle, try it and not be upset if you don't love it. Cause I did try to get a glass of Sancerre and they did not have it. And so I tried to take our advice and try because yeah. I went to the store to look and they were pricey and I was like, okay, no, thanks. And, and so I still have not gotten to try one because they didn't have it. That's I'm going to have to, so I'm excited to try these, which will be much easier for me to uh, get. Yeah, and they're not like sold out anywhere. The The region of South Africa has been producing some wine, ladies and gentlemen. And yes, you can actually buy the white blend and the red blend for less than one bottle of Sincere. So give it a shot, my friends, the curator white or the curator red. You know, you could put one in each goblet at the same you time. You could. And this if you wanted like to go crazy. Kind of wine. I, I felt goblety with the cloisters. Yeah. Why yeah. not? Raise a goblet. <laughs> we should get goblets. I want it. All right. We can okay, do that. It's woo to the who on a goblet. <laughs> Engraved. New merch. We were going cheap with bookmarks and stickers. We're moving on to woo to the who wine glasses. Yes. Because our stickers are doing so well. <laughs> I know. People do really like stickers. Um, so I guess we should move on to the book itself. Let's uh, ruin the plot. Let's ruin the plot. People did not really want to ruin the plot and synopses, so we're just going to have to ruin it together. Perfect. Um, so this is from Goodreads. Anne Stilwell arrives in New York City, hoping to spend her summer working at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Instead, she's assigned to the Cloisters, a Gothic museum and garden renowned for its collection of medieval and Renaissance art. 
There, she is drawn into a small circle of charismatic but enigmatic researchers, each with their own secrets, desires, including the museum's curator, Patrick Rowland, who is convinced that the history of tarot holds the key to unlocking contemporary fortune telling. Relieved to have left her troubled past behind and eager for the approval of her new colleagues, Anne is only too happy to indulge some of Patrick's more outlandish theories. But when Anne discovers a mysterious once-thought-lost deck of 15th-century Italian tarot cards, she suddenly finds herself at the center of a dangerous game of power, toxic friendship, and ambition. And as the game being played within the cloisters spirals out of control, Anne must decide whether she is truly able to defy the cards and shape her own future. Bringing together the modern and the arcane, the cloisters is a rich, thrilling, told tale of obsession and the ruthless pursuit of power. Dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. So I guess the main character we really need to bring into the fold here is Rachel. And she is the kind of second in command to Patrick at the Cloisters uh, and works there with Anne. She's kind of the opposite of Anne. She's very sure of herself. She's very wealthy. She is very um, sophisticated. Sophisticated, yes. And so Anne is kind of taken aback by her. Rachel ends up taking Anne under her wing and Anne just kind of learns that they are testing out these tarot cards at night to see if they tell the future. They don't tell her about it. She just kind of stumbles upon it. She becomes part of it with some really trippy drugs and Essentially, it ends up that Patrick is murdered and and overdoses on the drugs. So that's kind of like the starting set of that. And then Anne finds out that Rachel is responsible and is not who she says she is. And Rachel kills her family. And you find out that she just like literally like killed her family. She like arranged, and that's kind of like one of the bigger, one of the bigger twists because you get this inkling, you start getting this inkling that like Rachel isn't who she says she is. And then as it goes on, you're kind of all of these things start unrolling, like the death of her parents, the death of her roommate in college. And her thing is like, well, I didn't do it. I just helped the circumstances into which they died and then you know bringing in fate as well um and was supposed to work at the met but you find out that it was orchestrated for her to be at the cloisters and it's not just a mistake like that's kind of put out or it's made to be that way so then we find out that Anne accidentally killed her dad the biggest twist of them all was not ready she's for not it. naive at all and she 
ends up killing Rachel the same way that Rachel killed her parents. And they all live happily ever after. And she gets all the credit for her paper and the end. She's actually evil. I mean, it was a ride. Yeah, the last like even less than a hundred pages, you're like, <laughs> mm-hmm. and I I was the one that picked out this book, and I hope y'all liked it. I read it at the beginning of the year, or actually at the end of uh, 2022, and I told Lara, I was like, you need to go get it this because she loved and I loved The Lost Apothecary by Sarah yep. Penner. And so I was like, this is this year's dark academia kind of uh, mystical book. And um, so I'm I'm really glad that you enjoyed it, Laura, because I I read it and I immediately thought of you and um, I, I loved it. And I'm so glad we got to talk to Katie because her background in art history really sets her up to tell this story unlike anybody else gives you a really authentic yeah it I just feel really lucky that we got to talk to her and kind of break down some of the things that are in this book and they're not they're not tropes like in romance or anything but like stereotypes of what this world is like and she kind of breaks down what's real what's not real and gives kind of a behind the curtain view so it's such a good chat i hope y'all enjoy it enjoy our chat with katie hayes well thank you so much for joining us on to canterbury tales thank you guys so much for having me i'm thrilled so new york times bestseller a read with jenna pick what has this time been like with the cloisters it's been kind of wild i mean to be honest it's a dream debut author scenario in every way and i feel incredibly lucky and also really aware of how much i want to pay it forward for other writers because i realize how lucky I've been to have this kind of path. And I often think it's really funny. It's a book that's a lot about luck and fate. And the book itself has ended up having a lot of luck. And just, I wonder sometimes if that was fated or if I've just kind of, you know, wandered into it, but yeah, it's been a wild experience. And, you know, of course, are Jenna and Hoda as fabulous as we would hope? Oh my gosh. Yes, entirely. I have to say though, the best part for me was I am a huge Real Housewives of New York fan and Bethany Frankel was on promoting her show right before I was about to go on. And so she walked by me like into the green room as I was walking out. And I think that moment was the moment I just blacked out because I was like, I could almost touch Bethany Frankel right now, (laughs) which would freak her out. But yeah, it was very... (laughs) Yeah, like take it all in. Yeah. Yeah, So funny. I I don't allow myself to watch Real Housewives because I know that I'm going to become a monster. And so I'm I'm like saving that for retirement, maybe just like giving housewives 
my life. It's an actual hobby. I mean, I feel like it's something that I'm obligated to keep up on and that I have to be aware of. And I have fully committed at this point to almost every single franchise. So, I mean, there's still some hierarchy there, what I'll prioritize watching, but yeah, no, it's a commitment. Retirement is the perfect time for housewives. Yeah. Pencil and bra on so you can meet all the housewives. (laughs) Oh, well, we now just get to tell you how much we love your book and praise you for being awesome. Um, (laughs) And so our first thing with that is you write setting beautifully. The book was incredibly immersive. And as a reader, a picture was painted in my head. And so my question here is, did you spend a lot of time at the cloisters around New York to get it right? Because that feeling was there. That's so kind of you to say. And I really, um, I think a lot of that comes from, I'm an academic by training. So I've spent a lot of time writing about art and believe it or not, writing about art is really difficult in a way that allows the reader to be immersed in what is a two-dimensional object that they're not often seeing when you're writing about it. And so I think a lot of that sense of place, the writing about place comes from that skill set or that toolbox. And, you know, I have been to the glaciers, but unfortunately I was working on the book while two things were going on. One, it was the pandemic. And so I didn't really think that traveling recreationally was the best idea at the time. And I think for a long time, the Met was closed. So that wasn't possible. And then by the time it was possible, I broke my leg. I live in a ski town. I'm a really big skier. And so I spent a big chunk of the time I was writing the book, unable to walk misery style at my kitchen table. Um, so it made, I actually didn't manage to get back to the cloisters until the book was already done and sent to the printers, which was kind of wild. I'd been there in 2016, I think. And then I didn't get back there until the summer of 2022. So big break. Yeah. a question we did not write in. Are you okay now? Oh yeah. No, I can walk again. I'm totally <laughs> fine. Yeah. Okay. Just like making sure recovery was good there. Yes. <laughs> so on that, you have a PhD in art history and you teach art history. How did your profession impact how you wanted to present academia? And is it really that cut for, cutthroat as people who are not in academia? I mean, maybe this is some sort of answer, but I'll say that I left Berkeley before I finished my PhD. I was ABD when I left. And um, I'll just say that I think academia, it's funny, I was talking to a librarian at the Syosset Public Library, Jen Jordan, and she said to me that the genre dark academia was actually redundant. And I felt like that was the funniest and smartest thing anyone could say about the dark academia genre, because if you've been in academia, you know, it's plenty dark already. I mean, it does not need any of the trappings of kind of dark hallways and shadows and um, sort of sketchy mentorship figures. I, I think it's a pretty, it can be really dark. I do think it can be also equally really cutthroat. And so while ultimately the cloisters is a work of fiction, I do think there is some element of truth there that it's, you know, it's an environment where you're minting more PhDs than there are faculty positions. You're kind of pitting people against each other for their livelihoods. 
Um, it's incredibly clicky. It's very, very tense. It's really grueling. And so I think, you know, although there are also wonderful departments and programs and wonderful mentors and wonderful colleagues, um, there is always kind of a dark underbelly there. And I think it's something that readers and writers really gravitate towards. It, I mean, it seemed terrifying <laughs> to be part of. I mean, I I would fail. Mm, yeah, I, I, not in PhD, but I, I have a theater major. And so like the kids who got cast in the shows, like the directors are all professors. So like if you're buddies with a professor, you're significant, you're just significantly more likely to get a role, like a lead role. And that's what everyone needs in order to continue progressing after college with a kick-ass resume to like keep going. And I was like, wow, that sounds strangely like theater, except studying. <laughs> like, and it's a really interesting, I mean, it's basically an apprenticeship program, right? It's been an apprenticeship program for hundreds of years. And so there's this kind of idea that you get yourself under the wing of an advisor and that person sort of sees something in you that perhaps they saw in themselves decades ago. And so there's this kind of weird emulation, um, kind of narcissism, um, just like, you know, parental, but friendship, but also, you know, hero worshiping happening. And so it's just a really interesting environment. And I think especially, you know, in undergrad when you're younger, and even when you're in grad school, I think it's, it's really easy to be highly impressionable in those kinds of environments. Yeah. And as you're talking about this, I'm just like thinking about Patrick the whole time of just like, they would have done anything for him to have that opportunity. And so it's very interesting to kind of hear it from your perspective outside of the fictional. Um, there was this line in the book that I would love to know a lot more about. It was, wasn't that after all, we had become academics and researchers in the first place to discover art as a practice, not as an artifact. And so as an art historian, teacher, like, can you could elaborate on that? And then to apply it to your book, as a writer, do you consider the creation of the cloisters, the art and practice, and then your finished book, the art? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, I think one of the things that's really interesting about, and I think this is true of any field in the humanities, especially, is this sense that, you know, you can pick up a novel from the 19th century, you can look at an impressionist work of art, and you can appreciate it, right? You can read it and you can say, oh, this tells me something about the time period, or looking at it, this tells me something about the time period, or the person who created it. But there's this sense as an academic that these are living and breathing things in kind of a river of time almost. And there's this sort of wonderful, mercurial and transportive effect that studying a lot of these objects in, in depth has. And I think that's really one of the great things about academia is how absorptive it is. I mean, when I, I always wanted to be a lawyer, I come from a family of lawyers. My This is not an exaggeration. Both of my parents are attorneys. Both of my grandfathers were attorneys. And my only sibling is also an attorney. And I very narrowly missed becoming a lawyer. But when 
I became aware of the idea that you could spend your life just in a library effectively studying historic objects. I thought, why doesn't everybody do this? And of course, the truth is there's a lot, I mean, horrible reasons <laughs> not everybody does this. Um, you know, but I I think for me, that's what I really love about it. And it's what I love also about writing fiction is this ability to kind of get sucked into a slipstream almost and be taken somewhere else. And the the wild thing about fiction is, you know, that slipstream is literally your own consciousness, <laughs> um, just generating story. And obviously in, in academia, in the humanities, it's, you know, kind of historical texts and other scholarly work and the objects themselves. And so I do think there's a lot of synergy there. And I know, um, I also know a lot of academics who have left academia to write. I mean, Megan Abbott is one of my favorite authors. And I know she kind of had a similar trajectory, went to grad school and then thought, you know, I don't want to study noir. I, I want to write neo-noir. So. Very cool. Yeah. All right. Well, we're just going to keep in this little topic for a second to piggyback on that idea as art and practice, and then adding in this feeling or topic of ambition because ambition plays such a big role in this novel. Anne and Rachel clearly want to prove themselves. Patrick is really clinging or trying to find that moment of notoriety. But no one, it seems, has an actual sinister motivation to use the cards for their own betterment and reward to predict the future. It seems more that they just want to prove that these cards exist and that it's possible trying back to, or tying back to art in practice. Why do you feel it was important to approach the novel from that perspective? You know, I think for me, um, I, I was really interested in this idea that the cards would be more of, um, how do I, how's the best way to put this? I wanted them to be approaching the cards from the perspective of being art historians or aspiring art historians, not being occultists. And I think that that's something, um, that was sort of a difficult decision in a lot of ways, but ultimately for me, it's, it's a book fundamentally about kind of art objects and the history those objects have and how those histories also change over time. And so I really wanted them to kind of be grappling with this early question, which for me was, you know, are, were the original decks of tarot cards used in divin divinatory ways? And if, if the argument is no, they weren't, can we, I mean, what's the possible argument that they were, there's gotta be some kind of argument that they were right. And so that's really how I came at it. And, um, I think also on the, the topic of ambition for me, I think that female ambition in particular is a really interesting narrative engine. And I think that we're still really uncomfortable with female am ambition in a lot of ways. And so I'm really curious what happens um, when women are really willing to do anything kind of to achieve their goals. And especially when those goals are not necessarily even monetary, right? Like Anne's not 
Anne's not going to make any money as a curator at the cloisters, right? Or even as an academic. I mean, maybe she'll get a good pension if she gets like a tenure track job, but this isn't about money. It's about genuine ambition for a subject that you're passionate about. And so I was really interested in also in the question of what would you be willing to do to accomplish the thing you, you most want? And they did a lot. Yeah. They go to she, some lengths. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. They, they give, I, I feel like sometimes she even like, she gave, I think she knew who she was and she was on her path to getting who she was, but she did have to make little compromises with herself the whole way to say, all right, this is what I got to do. This is what I want. And I have to figure out if I'm comfortable doing that. And then ultimately she's like, yeah, I am. But that's cool. Um, so on the topics of the cards themselves, we have to ask, do you believe in tarot cards in their readings that they can actually predict the future or do we just see what we want to see? Because I've had my cards read and I can apply them exactly to where I am, what I'm doing. And so like in a broader sense, is fate itself a construct? Yeah, you know. For me, I think that um, I'm really curious about the question, what people are capable of believing in. So I really, I come at the question of tarot from the perspective of, can, can you believe the cards? And I haven't had a professional reading done actually, which is kind of funny. Um, but when I was born, my mother's best friend was from LA and she was kind of hippie. And so she had an astrology birth chart reading done for me as a baby gift, basically. And almost everything in that astrological reading has come to pass, which is wild, right? Because it was just based off when I was born, where I was born, my sun, moon rising, all of that. And so I think, although I haven't had an opportunity to have a card reading done for me, um, which is also something I purposefully avoided while I was writing the book, because I really wanted to be sure that I was approaching it from, um, the his from a really historical perspective, kind of looking at the cards from the 15th century, as opposed to contemporary uses. And I was worried I might blur the line too easily. So I'm really curious still to have a tarot card reading as to whether or not I believe they tell the future. I obviously think that there is some element of truth in things like tarot card readings and astrology. I'm a very practical person, but I think that it's inescapable that there are certain qualities that are untangible, intangible that we can't really grasp all the time. And so I think, I mean, my, my ultimate feeling is always free will is 90% of it and fate and luck are 10%, but sometimes that 10% can feel really outsized if that makes sense. No, totally. That, that does make sense. And, you know, I, this book kind of made me think about it. And I remember reading some astrology thing that Aquariuses are notorious to having bad ankles and weak ankles. And I am an Aquarius and I have horrible ankles. And so every Aquarius I meet, I'm like, how are your ankles? And Don't. without doubt, everybody has bad ankles. That's so I'm like, I'm like, what 
is going on with this? Is it written in the cards that if we're born between this time and this time, we're just gonna not work from the ankle down? And I don't know, but it makes me like think and have some weird like response and reaction if the evidence keeps saying, yeah, every Aquarius, horrible ankles. I also think there's this, I mean, one of the things that I find really fascinating about astrology in particular, but also tarot is that these are really old practices. I mean, when we talk about astrology, we're not talking about astrology starting in 1980. We're not talking about it starting in 1880. We're not talking about it starting in the 1400s. I mean, this is something that the Greeks and Romans were interested in. This is something that the ancient Egyptians were fascinated by. The idea that the stars and the constellations under which you're born affect your future and your life is actually a really widespread, um, deeply historic practice. And I think the same these days is true of tarot cards. I mean, the the practice of tarot now dates back, you know, 300 years, 400 years. I mean, if you push it to the 1400s, obviously, you know, we're talking, or 1500s, you're talking about, you know, 500 years. So I think there's also this sense that it's really easy to dismiss something like astrology or tarot and be like, oh, it's some new age hippie shtick, right? But the reality is this stuff has been around for a very long time and it has been taken seriously by some very interesting people too. Yeah. If you're ever looking for interesting Instagram accounts that uh, have tarot, there's one that I really love. His name is Madam Adam and he's just funny but his he always starts he's like what's up everybody it's madam adam and if my reading came across your feed then this one's for you and he does like quick three cards and each one plays on it the next one like the first card kind of starts the reading and then it all goes through and he does them in like what is an instagram reel like 25 seconds and he's just like real quick draw and they're always really interesting to hear him kind of pull through it Uh, But if you're looking for someone who is just like an interesting and fun, entertaining tarot reader, he's a good one. Um, Because I I am fascinated with it. I think it's really interesting. Georgiana got me a cat tarot deck for Christmas last year. It's sitting over here. Um, I'm obsessed with the, have you seen the pasta tarot? No. Oh, I'm really obsessed with the pasta tarot. I'm a really big, I, I love pasta and like every carb ever created. And so I'm very into the pasta tarot deck. Yeah. I love all the different ones, but yeah. they just like, I have three now that just have arrived to me. So I, uh, people just keep giving them to me and I'm like, I accept these are fun. I just like looking at them. They're interesting. Uh, but the whole, the whole concept is incredibly interesting. But moving into more discussions on the art world, because wealth plays a really important role in solidifying Rachel and Anne's friendship. Rachel's wealth keeps Anne close to Rachel. Rachel's wealth and subsequent lake house and everything that comes with Rachel's wealth, her driver, everything provides the setting for this novel's climactic ending reveal with Rachel In that same vein, the art world is constantly held as reserved for those who can afford to be there, which Anne can't afford to be there. Like even down to what she wears to work every day. Is Anne exploiting this friendship for access? I know she won't admit it to herself. And then 
in that, are you trying to make a statement about the art world and its association with wealth? I feel like I don't even need to make that statement. It's just a given. <laughs> you know, I I think is Anne exploiting Rachel for access to that world? Yes. Would Anne exploit anything around her for access to that world? Yes. Rachel just happens to be the one there who can provide it. Um, I do think, you know, it's sort of a cliche that the art world is full of kind of rich people and rich Nepo babies and, you know, kind of dealers, collectors, uh, donors. And I, I think that that's a cliche for a reason. It's a really rarefied environment. It, there is definitely a cost of admission. That isn't to say that there aren't really interesting curators doing work who don't have those kinds of resources. Um, but I think it is as a world sort of, um, you know, it's thin air, let's be honest. And so I think that that's something that I really did want in the book. And I wanted that kind of push and pull between Anne's background and the kind of environment she was suddenly put in, in at the cloisters. And so for me, yeah, I, I think that's a huge part of it. And I think, I also think for, you know, every, every Anne in a graduate program, there's still like two Rachels, if that makes sense. Right. Cause like I said, Anne's not doing this for the money. You're not going to come out of a graduate program earning large sums of cash. I mean, luckily PhDs are usually fully funded for the humanities. So it's not like you're racking up a ton of student debt, but like, this isn't a route to financial success for most people. And so usually you're in that environment because financial success isn't something or financial stability isn't something that keeps you up at night. Yeah. And to that point, Rachel already has it. Yeah. She's doing this because she can, as opposed to Anne who, and do you think Rachel loves it like as much as Anne does? Um, just as a thought there. It's interesting that you ask that. You know, I don't think she loves it as much as Anne does. I think to me, there's no doubt that she is very good at what she does, that she's very talented. I didn't want, I didn't want the novel to be a story where Rachel's just getting what she has and just getting the opportunities she has because she is rich and privileged and her parents were donors or whatever, right? I wanted it to be that she was also incredibly talented, which I should say that a lot of people who are like Rachel are, right? I mean, a lot of it's, if you're kind of in academia, it's, you're no slouch, right? Like no matter your socioeconomic background. So for me, I really wanted Rachel to be the real deal in, a, in addition to being really affluent. But do I think that she was as committed or as passionate or as hungry as Anne? I mean, I feel like the ending kind of says no. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, speaking of Anne, we've got to hit the twist. She That's has it's an all cap. It is. <laughs> Um, Anne has the biggest secret of all, and she's kind of seen as naive, immature, new to the world, and the other characters seem to have this idea that they've manip manipulated her, but in reality, she's hiding this very dark secret that, spoiler alert, she killed her own father by accident and hid it from everybody. 
And so why give her this deep, dark secret? And why not her let her be kind of the ingenue that has the happy ending? It's a secret between Anne and the reader. And so why was that important? I didn't actually come to that in the writing of this book until I was a couple of drafts into the novel. So I had written the book without that twist at the end. And I continually felt like something was missing. And I kept, I'm a really iterative writer. So I like to write lots of drafts really quickly, um, just kind of writing my way into the story. And I'm sort of love to throw away like 80,000 word drafts and not even look at them and then start the next 80,000 word draft and just do that like two or three times till I feel like I'm starting to get a good bead on the story, um, which I don't recommend. It's really inefficient and takes a lot <laughs> of effort. Uh, but I, I think for me, there came a certain point where I realized that that had to be what happened to her because I felt like there was such an intense desire to get out of Walla Walla. There was such an intense desire for her to achieve something, to accomplish something. It felt like there was such a weight on her as a character that it seemed like there was something I was missing. And so ultimately I felt like in the writing of maybe the fourth or fifth draft, I got to the end and I realized that I felt like that was what had happened. Um, and it was sort of a, a little bit of a wild idea. At first I asked, um, I asked my editor, I was like, do you think this is okay? And she said, oh, I don't know, write it in and we'll see, you know, I'll read it and see what I think. Um, and it ended up right. It, I wrote it in and it worked. I felt really well. I was really happy with it. And she was really happy with it too. And so for me, I think that it was kind of getting deeper and deeper into the characters. And only when I got there, did I realize that that was actually what had happened to her. That's cool. That's good to know. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I was reading not. it. I was reading it. I was like, what? And it's a secret. And that's why I was like, it is a secret between Anne and the reader. I was like, nobody else knows. Yeah. Uh, Which like, what a burden, you know? Yeah. <laughs> but it just colors her in such a different way throughout. Like it makes you rethink everything else that's happened. And you're just like, Oh, 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 um, on another note, what is your favorite book? Either one that you've read too many times to count, you know, what's your, what's your go-to book? And then also what's your go-to beverage? Oh, um, so I, feel like my go-to book has to be Daphne du Maurier's Rebecca, which I love and which everyone loves and which I've read a million times. I'm also a really big fan of her book, The Scapegoat, which doesn't get enough attention, but which is great. But I also want to give a shout out to a contemporary author. I've been really into the books by Christopher Bolin. He is a novelist who writes um, kind of incredible literary suspense books. My favorite of his is uh, The Destroyers. And he has a new book coming out in March I'm really excited about. Uh, so he's kind of my contemporary go-to author. And then my beverage of choice is honestly, it has to be like a cup of herbal tea. I am like, that's what I drink all day long when I'm writing. I live in the mountains. It's actually not that cold here by mountain standards. I feel like people in Colorado laugh, like the Sierras are pretty warm by comparison to Colorado or Wyoming, but I'm from coastal California where it's actually very temperate. So I usually drink a lot of herbal tea during the day, just like mint tea, 
ginger tea, whatever. And then my beverage of choice in the evening is always a beer, like an IPA. Yeah. I do. And it's very fun uh, wine that I discovered. There's actually a red blend. They also have a white blend, but it's called the curator. Oh, I love it. I was like, all right, so I'm picking it up and we're gonna try it, but so hopefully it's really good. Cause if not, cause that's what I'm going to pick. But I saw it and was like, <gasps> snatch, this is perfect. That's incredible. I feel like I should bring that to the next book club I attend. <laughs> perfect. Well, how it is. Yeah. It, we won't let you bring it if it's bad. Okay. Let me know. <laughs> <laughs> sure. and so kind of a, kind of a follow-up on yeah, your favorite book, but Anne's got books everywhere. So what do you think her answer to that question would be? Oh my goodness. I think it would have to be, I think it would be one of two books. I think it would be um, an instance of the finger post. Have you heard of that book? It's a book about, um, I think it's 15th century England. It's like a court intrigue novel. It's like 700 pages and a couple of maybe like a decade old now. It's incredible. Um, I think it's Ian Pears. Let me see. I think I have it here somewhere. Yes, it is Ian Pears who wrote it. Um, I feel like that or Umberto Echoes, The Name of the Rose, which also has a cameo in the novel. Um, it's the book that she takes from Patrick's study that has the card That's hidden in it. Um, and I think both books, Umberto Echoes and Name of the Rose is also a, a very large doorstopper of a intrigue. In that case, a monastery intrigue, not a court intrigue. Um, but I think probably one of those two would be Anne's favorite novel. Yeah. Good to know. Yeah. I'll read your picks first and then I'll read Anne's. Yeah. I really, I really recommend, I've been super into Christopher Boland's books and I also love a beautiful crime. If you guys want a book set in Venice, that's like fun and pacey, but beautifully written. I feel like it's such an immaculate novel. Okay. And he doesn't get enough attention. I feel like it's really rare to stumble across a book that's so good, but that hasn't kind of had as big a push as it might've. So yeah. Well, and of course we admit we did some light Instagram stalking <laughs> and of course we must know everything about your dog queso. Oh yeah. The cheese is in here with me right now. The cheese, um, yeah. Great <laughs> we, we have an Australian shepherd named queso. The book is dedicated both to my husband, but especially to him, which my mother was horrified by. She was like, you dedicated the book to the dog and not me. Um, and <laughs> he is eight years old. We call him the cheese. And he's just a very, he's a very good boy. He got a bath today and he's still pouting about it, but you know, as, as one does, as one does, but yeah. they've got to happen. Yeah. He was filthy. It was disgusting. I mean, the water would just like ran Brown for 20 minutes. Yeah. Yeah. We have, um, a, we don't know if she's great Dane or blood, uh, great Dane or Mastiff mixed with bloodhound. Not sure there, but she's like one bath away from not being able to be in the bathtub and she's going to have to do the bathing outside and it's going to just be like a whole nother level of hate for us. Yeah. Bath time is her least favorite thing on the planet. 
I initially took our dog to the groomers because obviously he's like long coated. He prefers to be blown out. He gets really mad at really easily. And he had such a miserable time at the groomers that she was like, I think you should find a solution to bathe him at home. <laughs> and so my poor husband, I made him like convert our entire downstairs bathtub into like a dog grooming center, which our dog does not get that many baths, just to be clear. It was a lot of effort for like a dozen baths a year. I think he gets like one a month. <laughs> so it's not very much. But it's enjoyable for you when it yeah. does happen. And he's, I think le- he's still miserable, but less miserable. And speaking of a rabbit hole to go down YouTube, dog grooming videos. It's a weird place, but it's amazing. Oh my gosh. I'm totally going to take you up on this because obviously, yeah, yeah. as I said, we have a long haired dog who gets easily matted and who cries. I mean, he has no chill, this dog who cries no matter how much show sheen and conditioner, if you like tug on the tiniest mat he just freaks out so i'm gonna after this 100 percent google dog australian shepherd matted youtube grooming videos it, it it lasts for hours and some of them are funny some of them are just like very technical and they're all great i so- always joke that i would really be happy as a dog groomer if my teaching and writing didn't work out as a career because I love dogs and I really enjoy just, I mean, it's so satisfying cleaning things in my personal opinion. Like I love to tidy the house, um, especially when procrastinating. Uh, so I feel like this, I, this is something I could get way too into. And I love that for me. I active in, you know, your retirement, (laughs) I'm going to watch real housewives dog grooming. There you go. Start with New York. You won't be sad. Okay. Yeah. Noted. Noted. Where are you guys based, by the way? Um, I'm in Charleston. Oh, no way. I've always wanted to go to Charleston. It is. It's a great town. It's um, very historical. Mm -hmm. Um, I actually work for the college in Charleston. So more in an administrative side of things, but it's fun being academia adjacent to yes. everything, but no, it's a great town and you definitely should uh, come visit. And uh, there's, there's always something fun going on here. Yeah. So I love it. And the weather is spot on. It was like 65 degrees today and sunny. So nice. I'm in Jackson. Oh, okay. No way. Yeah. So I'm uh, about three hours north of New Orleans. Yeah. Where she and I met. <laughs> oh, how funny. My, um, my agent is from Mississippi and there's such a long history. I feel like of Southerners going into publishing and becoming writers. So it's, it's rich history for you guys. Absolutely. Yeah. We went to the Mississippi book festival last year and we'll definitely go again this year. But it was just incredible to see like the amount of people that showed up to support specifically just like the literary scene in Mississippi and how many people were excited to be there. And it was it was really cool to be a part of, especially given the state that is given one of the hardest times for like literacy. Literacy. Yeah. Have you guys listened to Once Upon a Time at Bennington College, the podcast that Oh my gosh, I'm going. Lily Analik did about Donna Tart and 
Brett Easton Ellis and Jonathan Latham when they were at Bennington in the 90s or 80s they were there in the 80s no okay I highly recommend it if you are at all a literary gossip like I live for gossip it's why I love the Real Housewives and I love nothing more than some secondhand 30 year old gossip about my favorite writers um and it is a wonderful podcast. Um, all the episodes are really long. I, I like to listen to them when I go on long runs and stuff, but she has a ton of episodes in there, obviously about Mississippi and Mississippi's literary scene around Old Miss, because that is where Donna Tart started before she transferred to Bennington. And it's really wonderful. So if you guys are looking for some literary gossip to get you through the winter, once upon a time at Bennington College. And I'm going to because I'm about to fly to Jackson to go see her for the Natchez Literary and Cinema Festival. And this will be my airplane time. It's it's incredible. You'll love it. Yeah. I'll be in the mood for Mississippi. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Well, Well, to kind of wrap up. um, So what's next? Where can we find you? Anything you want listeners to know? I, well, I'm not quite talking about my next project yet, but it goes to my editor tomorrow, which is incredibly nerve wracking. It's always that moment when you find out if the emperor is wearing clothes or not. So we'll see (laughs) what she thinks. And you can find me primarily on Instagram and I'm on Instagram at Hey, Katie Hayes, H-E-Y-K-A-T-Y-H-A-Y-S. Um, and that's pretty much it. I'm not a big social media or I'm mostly out with the dog or writing or working, but I'm trying to be better. Hey, it's hard. You live on a mountain. I would be outside too. Yeah. And social media like takes a lot of time. I want to like give a shout out to Instagram content creators because those photographs, that is a time commitment. I am impressed. Yeah. We are a two woman show and we've, we've had to up our Instagram game a lot. And it's really upsetting how much I care about lighting and backgrounds. (laughs) No, the lighting is super important. It makes or breaks everything on Instagram. I know. Yeah. All for the aesthetic. This is the for us. And so we have been, (laughs) we start, I know there's, there's the cheese. You want to say hi? No, but you have to come up here to say hi. Now he thinks, sorry, now he thinks someone's here, which is not helpful at all. Queso, come here. Come here. No, come on. You're going to come. All right. Anyways, well, we'll see if I can get him to come say hello. Yeah, that Ready? No, come here. Ready? There we go. Oh, hello. Hi, Queso. He's like, what? He's not very smart. He's lovely. But you are a beautiful cheese. He's a beautiful cheese. He's not very bright. Yeah. (laughs) A delightful dum-dum. A delightful (laughs) dum-dum. That's amazing. Oh, man. Well, that was all we had for you. Well, thank you guys so much for having me. Genuinely, it's been so fun to chat with you guys. And I'm going to go follow you on Instagram right now. Thank you. You And uh, I know you're not talking about the next book, but when the next one comes out, We'll just, we'll have you back. That'd so be we so great. about it next. Yeah, I love that. And enjoy the, your Natchez Literary and Film Festival. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. And uh, have a great night. It was so good talking to you.
Thanks guys. Bye. Bye. And we're back. We're back. That was just so good. <laughs> it's like every time we have an interview that goes so well, there's a moment in time when the author gets off the chat, and Georgiana and I are still in the chat, and we both just sit there and we both have these like stupid smiles, and we're just like, that was a really good interview. <laughs> and so <laughs> There's some interviews where we get off the phone with the author and it is just like, that was gold. That was so good. And this was one of those. This was just such a good interview. So friggin' thanks, Katie Hayes, for writing this incredible book. And thanks for being giving with your time and your thoughts and embellishing on it because, you know, it it could be you we like write these questions deep. and you don't play with us. Yeah. And so we we just... Thank you for participating because it really is such a good feeling to get off of a chat with somebody of whose book you just loved and be like, okay, you lived up to everything I wanted you to live up to. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you for living up to my expectations of what I needed you to be. <laughs> Preach. Um, I also just like really kind of want, maybe one day we'll get all of our authors that have <laughs> that have become our like friends and Instagram friends. our Instagram friends, Instagram friends are real friends in the book world. Apparently. apparently. Um, we just like, have one was, giant meetup of all these authors in one room and you and I are just like, hi everyone. <laughs> <laughs> Please talk amongst yourselves. This is a round table discussion. Uh, for real. It would be so interesting. It would be super interesting. All right. Well, that's what we got for you. We're not going to book banter outside of that. Uh, typically when we book banter, it's because we haven't interviewed the author. So we don't we need give to. our best to the author. We, we've already put it in. We've, we've done our time. <laughs> so thank you for joining us this month. We hope that you enjoyed it. Hope you enjoyed our interview and our wine pairing. Let us know. Write us an email to canterburypod at gmail.com. Find us on the social medias, Facebook, Instagram, and Goodreads. Anything else we have? Nope. The Canterbury Pod. The Canterbury Pod. And check out our website, decanterburytales.com. Maybe we'll put a blog post up soon. I'm not making any promises, y'all. Zero promises. And what else? Oh, our merch is on the website. So if you go to decanterburytales.com and click the pod shop button, you can see our merch. We have stickers and we have buttons and we have bookmarks and they're all very cute. And if you're a fan of the show, we would greatly appreciate your support. Do you guys want to know what we're going to read next month? Did you pick up what we're reading this month <laughs> earlier in the episode? Yeah, no, no, no. Did they? Do you think they did? I don't know. Did you? No, no, no. We are reading The Bartender's Cure by Wesley Stratton. So pick that up at your local bookseller. It's also on Amazon. It's also on, you can find it pretty easily. So 
go find it. I picked it up during the last year during the Barnes and Noble hardback sale. Mm-hmm. And so that's where I got and, her. And guys, she is a sweet little book that is uh, 246 pages and every chapter has a new cocktail recipe. So was this book made for Decanterbury Tales? Absolutely. Well, yes, it was. Absolutely. So we hope you enjoy it. I enjoyed it. It was the first book in a long time that I've read and been like, there's not more. <laughs> so I, I hope you guys enjoy it. This is one that I just kind of like forced on the pod. It's my turn <laughs> to pick a book. So there you go, everyone. I hope you enjoy it. Bottoms up. Let's get reading. Stay weird. Stay weird. Bye. Okay, bye. 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 <laughs> <laughs> We're unhinged.